0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet and Jacqueline Masters, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 68, where we're talking about Where the Lion Bleeds by Jasmine Ward and Heartland by Sarah Schmarsh. But before we start today's episode, you can find
1: all of the books we talk about in today's episode in linked in your show notes. So if you're looking for a transcript of today's episode, follow the link and it'll take you to our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, where you can find a downloadable PDF. So we have some special news for you today. First, continuing our celebration of Reading Women Month, we've launched our very first t-shirt campaign, and you can support Reading Women by purchasing this limited edition t-shirt.
0: Autumn has been working really hard on these t-shirts and they say reclaim half the bookshelf on the front and they come in a range of colors and sizes so head over to bonfire.com slash reading to grab one of your very own that's bonfire.com slash reading uh, and of course you know Jack and I being you know who we are we have to talk <laughs> about the latest prize news. Yes.
1: So earlier this month, the Women's Prize for Fiction was announced. Uh, They announced the winner and Tayari Jones and her novel An American Marriage won. So you and I actually predicted this book to win. Yeah, I I think that was more based on like commentary that I'd seen a lot of people making on social media about like one of the prizes criteria I think is accessibility to you know a a large audience
0: and this is a book I really enjoyed reading so I I was happy to see it win. There has been some criticism of the Women's Prize in the past for not having a lot of racial diversity so I think they in the last few years they've definitely made active steps to uh, change that and so I honestly it was great to see an African-American woman win the very British women's prize for fiction, uh, that did bring a lot of joy to my heart.
1: I think based on the the shortlist that we had, I think from that list of books anyway, I certainly think it was one of the stronger within that shortlist. So Kendra, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was um, a lot of people that were at the, the live party where this was announced mentioned that Tayari's acceptance speech talked a lot about incarceration in the U.S., and the research work that she's done on that, um, which is really interesting because I think one of the big criticisms that people have of An American Marriage is that it's not a political novel. Um, It's very much a story about the real lives of these three people.
0: I think that's very interesting as well. I've been reading some of the same articles. There have been criticisms, both positive and negative, like you said. So it's been a really interesting conversation, especially kind of viewing it through that lens of the UK prize judges. And a lot of UK reviewers picked it up and hearing their perspective on it was definitely an interesting take. But yeah, so that is our prize updates for, I guess, last year's books. And now we're about to head into the prize season for 2019 books, starting with, I believe, the long list for the Man Booker Prize. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if you need to change your uh, statistics
1: on the Reading Women website. I know. And Mm -hmm. also
0: the Nobel, the two Nobel uh, Prize for Literature... Uh, winners will come out, I think, later this summer, early fall, summer. I don't really remember. It's been so long. It'll <laughs> oh, be interesting to see anyway. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, okay, who do we think it might be? I don't know. I mean, it was like Bob Dylan last time, you know, a few times ago. Just like.
1: Yeah. I don't feel like I've got any read on what <laughs> what will come up for the Man Booker or the Nobel.
0: We should put a bunch of names in the hat, pull them out. I think that's actually how it must work. <laughs> <laughs> Some really very tired, like, Nobel Committee person just, like, threw Bob Dylan in and then just, oh, look.
2: (laughs) So we are talking this month about working class stories. And we talked a little bit last time about why we chose that theme this month. But would we like to kind of recap why we picked this theme? Yes. So just
0: a general overview. For Reading Woman Month, we we like to pick as Autumn said, something that's very personal for us uh, and try to pull that out a little bit and and talk about it, discuss it, and feature it a bit more. And so this year we picked working class stories, which is a topic very close to our hearts. That's really why this came to be. And honestly, I haven't seen too many people talk about working class stories in American literature in particular. So this has been a really interesting topic for us to explore.
2: And then for me, I don't think i really realized class as a thing until i got older and i realized that i was the i'm pretty sure i'm the first woman in my family to go to college but definitely the first woman in my family to have a master's degree or any kind of secondary de- degree and also i realized that i grew up as it were on the wrong side of the tracks so that's kind of something that i'm trying to learn about now and just kind of understand the cultural history a little bit more
1: Mm, it's something i'm seeing more and more in literature but I, i don't know whether it's a product of it's just being written about more or whether i'm looking for it more one of the things i mentioned in the last episode was that i grew up in the northeast of england and there's a big divide in the uk between the north and the south and you know class is very much central to that division so it was something
2: that i think i've been aware of um quite early in my life so the first book we're going to be talking about is Where the Line Bleeds by Jessamyn Ward. And this book has recently been republished by Scribner. And it is the story of two twin brothers, Joshua and Kristoff. And they are being raised by their grandmother. And they live in the fictional town of Boy Savage, Mississippi. As I kind of mentioned before, the thing that I think is really interesting about this book is that we see, because the brothers are twins, we get to see two different sides of the exact same story. So we have two brothers who graduated from high school at exactly the same time, they're the same age, obviously they're twins, so they've had the exact same life up until this point, point. and we kind of see how two people with the same set of opportunities kind of respond to those things, given the circumstances that happened to them that's kind of a brief high-level overview.
0: Yeah, and we are huge fans here of Jesmyn Ward, but one of the reasons we do love her and connect with her books is because she talks about the rural South, and what's interesting in this book is that she talks about two twins, and essentially they come from the same place, but they have two different outcomes when they start looking for jobs after graduation. It's almost like parallel stories of the same person just did with different outcomes, and I found that parallel very interesting as the story unfolds
2: well especially because as you mentioned so the the boys go down to the waterfront to try to get a job on a fishing boat and there's only one job available and obviously there's two of them and so they kind of have to decide who's going to apply and they end up both applying and then one of them gets accepted and one of them doesn't. And that's kind of the catalyst for kind of how this whole story unfolds. So it's not, that, it's not that they had a lack of desire or that one of them wanted it more than the other one. It's just that one was picked and one of them wasn't. It was a seemingly random <laughs> choice, you know, as it were. It's so interesting to look at it, like how much luck plays in that
1: one scene and like the the repercussions that go throughout the rest of the novel from that one scene Um, and like having them as twins and having that story and seeing where those paths sort of start splitting is I thought it was fascinating.
0: Yeah, and, and I find it interesting, in this particular novel, the boys' parents are not in the picture for various reasons, so their dad is a drug addict and known as Sandman, harkens back to the god of dreams, and then their mom left and went to Atlanta when they were younger, and so they're being raised by their grandmother, who is blind. And if you know Jasmine Ward's work, you know she brings a lot of mythology into her books, and, like, she really loves the classics, as in, like, you know, the Iliad, the Oddity, Odyssey classics, not, like, Charles Dickens classics. I found it very interesting, and in the back of the edition that I have, this reissue, there was this discussion question about Castor and Pollux, and I was like, oh, yes. Thank you, you brought You brought this for me. Thank you. And it's really true, like, if you know the story of Castor and Pollux, I feel like this story kind of makes sense, but also she's playing with who their parents are and just a lot of different things. And this is her debut novel, so she pulled all of that together pretty successfully.
2: Well, and for those of you who have read Salvage the Bones, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and we're pretty sure that this narrative is happening pretty much simultaneously with Salvage the Bones, maybe a couple months before uh but they're definitely living in the same ecosystem which i think is really interesting to think about them that way as well as like two books that belong together so i need to reread salvage the bones now yeah and
0: Jacqueline, you were saying that you'd read sing unburied sing first which is the last book in this trilogy about this community yeah i i didn't actually realize it was a trilogy when i read it which
1: is you know entirely my fault but it's it's interesting now reading i guess backwards the trilogy i mean it's it's very clever that a series can still do that can read so effectively as a standalone book but like at the same time work together like
0: in such a an interesting commentary too Since you're not from America and you're coming in and you've been here a while, was there anything interesting that stood out to you reading this story uh, about these two twins?
1: I found just a lot of the descriptions of scenery and food and, you know, conversation between people really fascinating. Um, My husband actually spends a lot of time in Mississippi for work. So much of what he describes about things that he sees there and um you know food experiences and things like that were so vivid and you know you could almost taste when she was when she's writing about you know the different food scenes and things like that you can almost taste them she writes them so vividly yeah the the landscape i guess because it's it's a coastal community um and that's so integral to the narrative itself um i thought that was really interestingly
2: written i was doing some reading about this book in preparation for this episode because this book was actually published 10 years ago in 2009 and so it's recently been as we mentioned recently republished and so I was trying to go back and read some of the original reviews and comments about this story. In one of the interviews Jessman talks about the two epigraphs that she includes at the beginning of the book and I'm going to Go ahead and just read those. First one is from Genesis 25, 21 through 23. It says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And then the second quote is from Pastor Troy, who is a southern rap singer, his song Vice Versa, and it says, Why Jesus equipped with angels and devils, equipped with fire. For God so loved the world that he blessed the thug with rock. Won't stop until they feed me. Protect me, devil. I think the Lord is trying to kill me. And I think that in hindsight, these two quotes set such a perfect tone for what happens in the story. But also she was talking in this interview about how she deliberately chose these two quotes because... Pastor Troy is a southern rapper that she grew up listening to and how southern rap is something that the wider world sees as being kind of like a fad and then they just wait for it to go off the scene and she deliberately paired it with a verse from the Bible to give it she said to give it more credibility and I thought that that was so like every single thing about this book is so well thought out I just... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> ah. that's quite a pairing too <laughs> like the bible and a rap singer
2: <laughs> right like you wouldn't i mean most people wouldn't put those two things together but i think you know two key things that stood out to me was like two manner of people shall be separate so it's like two people so two different groups of people this is referring to jacob and esau who are brothers who literally two nations end up coming from them this second one about like, I think the Lord is trying to kill me. And I think that kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier about chance or fate, or whatever it is that seems like interfere in these two brothers lives. I mean, they both try so hard, you know? Yeah.
0: And you know, I was reading this book while I was also reading Appalachian Reckoning. And in there, there's a quote about how if people are to succeed in rural areas, they really need economic opportunity and the fact is when they're talking about finding a job for example both of the twins don't have a car at first and so that's an issue but all of the jobs are not in their little town they're in like the next town over which is a little bigger and so they need a car and then they only have one car so they have to share and so only one of them can have a job at a time and all of these complications that I don't think a lot of people think about when they think about Boys from this type of background, that the need for economic opportunity, but also all of the logistics surrounding, you know, having a job. And uh, yeah, so so when Joshua gets the job, he actually ends up hurting himself on the job. And it's like these guys can't catch a break, you know? If just one thing goes wrong, it all goes tumbling down. And so when one boy has a job, the other one starts dealing some you know like low-key drugs and stuff just while he's trying to find a job it's a source of income because their grandmother is blind and can't support them and there's just a lot of complexity in there that I think she really lays out so people who have certain opinions about working class people that you see like it really is a lot of luck oddly and there's this like express consciousness
1: as well that if you are injured at work and you can't continue working then someone else will have to be the breadwinner in the household and that's like dealt with very explicitly in the the narrative
2: when christoph is talking to his friend who is it's he's just stealing weed but he when they're having this discussion where he's trying to talk him into it i'm going to read just a short part here says dunny's voice dropped if you buy more from me with your profit and then sell all that you double your money easy christoph rubbed his hair laced his fingers together and locked them behind his neck before dropping them i don't know dunny just think about it you don't have to do anything you don't want to do in the end you could find a way to make it a broke way but a way dunny's voice in the dark was suddenly soft clean of anger and tinged with the wistfulness that surprised christoph you could be lucky and I think that that section is really kind of shows how what we've been talking about about luck and chance, you know, it says it's a broke way that you just kind of do what you have to do just to survive.
1: And it's not even a long-term plan. It's very much just getting through the next, like being able to feed your family and um, get through the next, get to the next paycheck. It's not sort of a long-term plan.
2: Even with their their mother, Seely, you know, she moves to Atlanta so that way she can make more money to help take care of these twins and it doesn't it never seems to me that she made a decision to stay in atlanta forever it's almost like she just did it to have her son survive and support her mother and then just over time it kind of became a more permanent decision
0: what was really impressed upon me after you know reading this book is you know When I graduated high school and even in college, if I needed a place to crash, even for a few months, I could always go back to my parents' house. Even, you know, there was always that, like, safety net there that if I graduated college and needed, like, a year to find a job, my parents would be there for me. But that's not—there's no safety net for these two twins when they graduate high school. They're immediately thrown into the real world. They have a dependent, uh, their grandmother, who's taken care of them their entire lives. And that's it. I think people take that safety net for granted so much when we discuss class that it's important to note here that there is none for these boys. And even at the end of the book, there's still no safety net for them. Like, they're always going to be on their own. There's no let up of the, you know, difficulties that they're facing.
2: Well, and I think even, like, we've seen in other— it's not so much explicitly in this book, but in other books about these situations, you know, the people who— your family is your support system, you know? And so even the scene where they're having the shrimp boil or the crawfish boil that, you know, that's their family, that's their community. And so for them to even leave and go to another town, they lose that very small safety net that they have anyway. Um, So, I mean, those are like some big sacrifices and hard decisions to make. And I think if you're just used to having that safety net and that support, that it's easy to overlook what a protection that actually is
1: and in many ways it's not even really decision i feel like so much of when i was reading this i felt like they didn't really have any real choices that they were being presented with it was very much just this is what we can do
2: oh definitely one of the things we talked about earlier too is about like the the theme of water in this book so it starts out with them in a river and ends with them in a river and you know water is a kind of thing that just flows (laughs) You know, there's no choice as to where it goes. Like, it just moves forward. It's indiscriminate. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, I think that's pretty symbolic of the fact that they're just carried along like the river, so.
0: And you can also see how they're playing in the first, you know, scene in the river, and in the last scene, they're fishing.
2: That's a good point.
0: Yeah, there's a difference of activity and um, the maturity that has happened.
2: And that's why we mentioned before the cover— and it's one of those optical illusions where it just looks like trees on a sky, but if you once you look at it, it's the two boys and the river between them. And I think that that's so symbolic for what happens in this story. There's a lot more I'm sure we could say about this book, and I'm sure if I reread Salvage the Bones, I could find even more to say about the two of them together, but we will stop there for now. So this is Where the Line Bleeds by Jessamyn Ward. We'll be back to discuss our
0: second discussion pick, Heartland, by Sarah Smarsh, after a word from our sponsor. Uh, Kendra, I think you were going to talk about our second book today. Yes. So our second discussion pick is Heartland, A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth by Sarah Smarsh. And this is also out from Scribner. That was not planned. It was just a happy coincidence. Uh, But this book was shortlisted for the National Book Award last year. And is just a really stellar memoir about Sarah Schmarsh's turbulent childhood, as it says in the description, growing up in Kansas in the 1980s and 1990s. And I think the subtitle is very telling, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. And I think the first topic here would be interesting to investigate is the stereotype that working class white people are lazy and don't work hard and that's why they're poor. That's the assumption that they have. You understand? Not reality.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because I don't think you can read this book and say that Sarah's family was lazy.
0: Yeah. I
2: I (laughs) also really liked
0: how she tackles a lot of the stereotypes of working class people. So, for example, it's assumed that if you own your land or your house, that you're automatically a middle class person. But she says that, yeah, we owned our land and our house but uh, our house was basically a glorified shack that had no insulation. There's this assumption of, like, criteria. And, yeah, okay, so her family met a certain criteria for that example, but they were still working-class people. There was this one scene I remember her talking about, I don't know how I didn't realize that we were working-class people, but we ate lard on bread sometimes. And I should have known, but I had no idea that I was poor. And that really stuck with me because... You know, as we've talked about, we talked about when we discovered that we were working class people or are people on that cusp of working class to middle class and how class, you know, affected our lives. Like, why is it, do you think, that people have to kind of discover that they're a a working class person?
2: Well, from a U.S. perspective, I think that this concept of the American dream so permeates our everything. <laughs> I mean, it really is the fabric. I I, I personally believe like it's at the heart of, of the fabric of this country. Because of that, I think that it's easy to say, well, I just haven't gotten there yet. I'm sacrificing to be a millionaire one day or something like that. I actually recently read a study that said that 50-something percent of millennials believe that they'll be millionaires one day. And, like, that's just, like, a really high number. That is a lot, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's, like, really high. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, especially in this decade or in this millennia, we've had the advent of the tech millionaires, and it makes it seem so easy to make a lot of money and all this stuff. So, I mean, I think a lot of people are just waiting for their big break you know, waiting for their Steve Jobs moment. And that's why I think it takes, because of those narratives, it's harder to see what's actually happening.
1: It's interesting you mentioned the American dream. I mean, I studied it at university, and I think it's as a non-American, it's something that was always felt very conceptual to me. But I think she really uses it in a really tangible way in this to really interrogate her own family's experience. And there's a quote really early on, if you don't mind me sharing. Um, But she says, but the American dream has a price tag on it. The cost changes depending on where you're born and to whom, with what color skin and with how much money in your parents' bank account. The poorer you are, the higher the price. You can pay an entire life in labor, it turns out, and have nothing to show for it. Less than nothing even. Debt, injury, abject need. So much to unpack in that, but I thought this book was so much more intersectional than I thought it would be, and it was almost self-critical while at the same time acknowledging the inherent privilege that she has as a white woman growing up in a white family. And you know, at so many points in the in the memoir, she you know points out how things could have been totally different if she'd been African
0: American, for example. I know it was really fascinating how she chronicled the cycle of poverty in her family, and particularly from the female perspective, because we follow her grandmother, her mother, and herself. And this book is addressed in second person to August, the daughter that she would have had if she continued the cycle of poverty, because she connects teenage pregnancy with how her family you know, got stuck in this cycle of poverty. And so when she went to college and she didn't, she surpassed like the time when her mom had her, it was like she broke that cycle. And this that's what this book really is about. It's it's like saying goodbye to what would have happened if she continued that cycle. And I thought this was a very interesting way to structure the book because I don't think I've ever actually read a book addressed to a possible future before, if that makes sense. No
1: and she does it at so many points as well like it's kind of a marker of progress for herself but also like yeah again that that
0: breaking the family cycle yeah and there's um there's a quote in the back and because she addresses it toward august her possible child um and she says that she may one day have a child that would never be this child the child that continues the cycle of poverty so there's this quote here on the last page and it says this country has failed its children august failed its own claims of democracy and humanity. The American dream in particular sometimes seems more like a ghost haunting our way of thinking than like a sacred contract we're signing towards some future. I mean, you see why it was shortlisted for the National Book Award.
2: And I think at one point she admits like that maybe she she second guesses herself. And I always appreciate when authors are willing to check their own to check themselves and say like, hey, I made this decision at one point, and maybe it wasn't the right decision, or maybe you know, I think that self awareness is always really helpful.
1: I'd agree with that, Autumn. I think one of the things I really respected that she had such a reverence for the the decisions that, and the the outcomes that her parents and grandparents had been able to to achieve, like in the face of what they had, and making the best of the situations that they presented themselves to them. So. Yeah, I I got a a big sense of respect on her part for for the efforts of her, you know, her family.
0: One of the things I wanted to talk about in our discussion is something that really struck me is that her family works with their hands. You know, her dad owned a construction company and they've been farmers and all of these different what we will call blue collar jobs, which, of course, that term is problematic, but we're going to work with the language that we have today. Uh, so she, her family comes from that kind of background. She was able to break the cycle of poverty by going to university, getting an education and working in what, with her mind, what we would call a white collar job. And I found this very interesting because I also read women talking in the same, around the same month, I guess, that I read the books for this theme, this month's theme. And in Women Talking by Miriam Taves, this man comes back to this colony and he's not considered as manly because he works with his mind not with his hands. That twist on the norm that we have in our society, that working with your mind is quote unquote better than working with your hands. I just, it made me think about that prejudice that we have and how, you know, there's articles about the lack of plumbers, the lack of electricians and, you know, qualified construction workers and all of these different things because the value goes to people who work with their mind. I mean, like prestige, I should say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, in a lot of literature, there's a huge emphasis on this kind of social capital in what kind of occupation you have and where that sits within the class structure. And women talking, I think that's a really apt comparison because, I mean, that really overtly deals with it too. And even on a more um, on a more fundamental level, like looking at class and employment, like she talks a lot in Heartland about the idea that women in her family have always worked and the idea of women working is is class based as well because it's something that comes with privilege this Choice not to work or not to work outside the home, rather, and she basically says that there was no point in her life where we, the the women in her family were sort of quote quote taken care of. You know, she can trace back several generations. Like all of the women in her family worked, and you know, it was just it wasn't this sort of liberation for them. It was just part of getting on with life. Like they had to provide. I found that really interesting because I think yeah, so much of this discussion around whether women work is, is it's always assumed to be a, a choice and i think that very question is very class-based itself but i mean i think this is one of those books that you could literally sit here all day and unpack all the different issues like there's so
0: much that she packs into this memoir it really is just fascinating as a side note i can't help but thinking about ghost wall and her dad versus the other dude in class the professor right Mm. What's considered more masculine? What's not? Who's considered more barbaric? Who's not? Who's more of a man and how ingrained gender in class are? It reminds me how, you know, the discussion of race in class is very intertwined as well. I mean, that's the quote in Lisa Pruitt made that like, no single identity can define who a person is. It's a combination of your your gender and class and race and sexuality, ethnicity, etcetera It determines what your experience of life is. And so even though we've been talking about class today, we can't help but talk about other intersections.
2: Well, and that's why I think intersectionality is so important because we can all present ourselves a different way, but... You don't know someone's background. You don't know what their health situation is. You don't know what their class is. You don't know – you don't really know anything about that person by looking at them. And so many
1: of those other, like, issues that you were talking about can't be talked about without class in them. So it's a
0: very chicken-and-egg kind of discussion in many ways, I think. And I think it's important to read a wide range of perspectives. Um, You know, when when researching for this particular episode – I found it very difficult to find texts that weren't people who left per se. So we were talking about this a little earlier, how both Jasmine Ward and Sarah Schmarsh live where they grew up, right? There's almost like an expectation
1: that people will move if they're given an opportunity to. Exactly. Well, the idea that it's even, uh, it's even asked as a question is kind of presumptive that there'd be some yeah. movement. <laughs> you know, it's not, not why did you stay, it's why wouldn't you stay.
2: <laughs> or why wouldn't you come back? Go get an education somewhere and come back and help your community and start the things that aren't there or, you know, be a force of change instead of just, like, abandoning it to oblivion where everyone else seems to think it belongs.
1: They talk about this a lot in Australia as well with people going and doing like further education or working overseas for a few years and this like brain drain, they call it. Um, with people, oh, I've read and, about this. Yeah, with people like not returning back to kind of, you know, build the economy and build the skills that they've learned overseas and bring them back to Australia. I, d- I don't know if it's a big thing in other countries, but I know it's, it's, it is a big concern
0: in Australia. It's really interesting. I do feel like we were talking about This discussion about Appalachia before we started recording about how there's this thing like there's this exodus of people leaving Appalachia and there's this assumption that if you like come more affluent that you're going to leave the region.
2: Um, But there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work where they are. But I feel like it's appropriate here to give a shout out to a publication that I really enjoy called The Bitter Southerner that's published here in Atlanta, and it's focusing on telling the stories of people who have stayed and who are doing good, and it's always really encouraging for me to read those stories.
0: Alrighty, Uh, so that was our discussion of Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth by Sarah Schmarsh, and that's out from Scribner and that's our show if you haven't yet please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice and thanks to all of you who have already done that many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible to subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons please visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com
1: join us next time where kendra and samaya will be talking about books about the partition of india In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester and Autumn at Autumn Privet and me on Instagram at Six Minutes for Me. Thank you for listening to Reading Women.